wisdom is understanding how long things take, mm. you know, to see a process. And sometimes uh, because of the culture that we live in that, that, uh, that favors an individual's perspective over a communal perspective, we think that what we see in one lifetime is all the what one can see. But other cultures can see multiple lifetimes because they're sharing what they're seeing in a lineage, you know? And there are some things that you cannot see in a hundred years that you must see in 500 or a thousand. This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersections of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Werning, and this week I'm talking with Fatima Paulino and Carlos Saavedra from the AINI Institute. We talk about the critical perspective of a long and global view of history to help us understand how long change takes and where the problems that we're facing now really come from. We talk about remembering who we are before our organizing work came into our lives slowing down to care for our bodies and family members with illness, collective work in indigenous traditions, ayahuasca and the ways that people are looking to the South for healing and spiritual direction and what those relationships do look like and could look like in terms of reciprocity and right relationship instead of appropriation. And we talk about memory and how we can respond to appropriation at the collective level. So the INEE Institute began as a coaching and training institute for organizations and movement builders. And I had the privilege of actually being with Carlos before when INEE was called Movement Mastery in uh, supporting some of the really early days of this organization. Um, and now, in collaboration with others, INI has done trainings on the science of popular movements with momentum, decentralization and decentralized organizing with their swarm training, a social movement ecology training, and even a long view training, which you'll hear us refer to in this episode, which is about studying 6,000 years of human history. Aini has also deeply supported Movimiento Cosecha and has been tracking the lessons that this groundbreaking movement for immigrant rights is producing, including how to build a decentralized network and how to bring millions of people into a general strike in the 21st century. So before we dive all the way in, I have a quick podcast update for you. So starting last week, our podcast volunteer production team circled up and decided that we're going to try out a new idea to bring some more community voices into the show. And as you know, we have a commitment to keeping all our content free and not using a model of paid content to access these conversations or practices. But we also have to get creative about fundraising and want to bring more community voices into what you hear from us each week. And so a big thank you and recognition to the people who already support us monthly on Patreon with pledges as small as $1, um, as big as $20 or more. Thank you to those who are already giving at Patreon. And for many of you, that might be your favorite option to support the show. And you can do that at patreon.com slash healingjustice. But if you want to share your voice or a particular shout out on the show, we have a new way for you to join in. So our new segment is called Affirmations, 
And this is a time for us to feature community voices, uplifting the people, organizations, communities, and more that are embodying the values of healing justice. So for a sliding scale donation, anything as small as $5 and up, you can submit your own personal shout out on the show to spread love. You can record it yourself in the voice memo on your phone uh, and submit it really easily. And this is a way for us to use the segments that are often used on other podcasts as advertising that are trying to sell you stuff. And instead, we're going to use our quote unquote advertising slots for community building. So if you want to try it out, I know it might be nervous to think about hearing the sound of your own voice on the podcast, but I assure you it's this really, really special and sweet thing to build a culture where we're actually publicly uh, celebrating one another and the incredible efforts that we are making in uh, our healing and in our work for justice as a community. And so if you want to submit a community love affirmation to be played in a future episode, you can head to healingjustice.org and look for the button in the upper right that says submit an affirmation at healingjustice.org. And the link to find it is also in the show notes. So this is a total experiment. We'll try it out together and see if it sticks. And you'll hear one during our show today. A couple of folks have already uh, submitted their affirmations. So I'm excited to share those with you. They're really, really sweet. So before we dive into the conversation, let me tell you just a little bit more about what the Aini Institute is doing now and who Carlos and Fatima are. So right now, the Aini Institute's Memory Fund is focusing on supporting artists and communities that are working towards keeping the history and wisdom of indigenous traditions alive. And their vision is to preserve the ancestral traditions of indigenous groups in the Andes and the Amazons of Peru specifically from a holistic perspective, which means that those communities are sharing their stories, their culture, and their wisdom in their own voices. And so Carlos Saavedra is the founder of the Aini Institute, and Carlos migrated to Boston, Massachusetts at the age of 12 with his parents as an undocumented student, and their family is from Peru. Carlos became the national coordinator for the United We Dream Network uh, and was key in organizing the campaigns that led to the victory of legal relief for 1.4 million undocumented youth through DACA which is the biggest uh, policy victory of the immigrant rights movement in the past 30 years. And so since 2013, Carlos has been working with the INE Institute to provide training and coaching and incubation of new projects for social change. And Fatima Paulino is the daughter of immigrants from the Philippines and Mexico and spends her time between the Bay Area and Boston. And Fatima joined the INE team in 2017 as the co-coordinator of the memory program. But before she joined that team, she was a community organizer as part of the PICO National Network and then as a full-time volunteer with the Cosecha movement. Fatima is currently finding her way back to her creativity through writing, food, meditation, movement, and loved ones. And you'll hear more from Fatima when the practice that's associated with this episode goes live on Thursday. So thank you for being here with us, and here we go. Hey, Carlos. Hey, Fatima. Hey, Kate. Hi, Kate. 
I'm so excited that you two are here and it's such a fun throwback to be able to gather <laughs> with you. Um, even though we are talking to Fatima via the phone, who is in Boston <laughs> at Carlos's house and Carlos is here at my house in Brooklyn. <laughs> and somehow together this morning, even with the trains in New York City, we figured this out. Um, and I am so excited for you two to be here because we have, um, and Fatima and I were talking this morning about the history of sort of meeting, uh, meeting Fatima for the first time mm. at the momentum training that happened at Watershed. Mm. Um, and then uh, the first significant thing that we did together was one of the early meetings of what became Movimiento Cosecha. Mm. Um, and that it's a really special time to sort of reconvene after you two have put in many years of really hard work around mm. that movement. Mm. Um, and now are, sh are shifting into some a different aspect of the work in some ways with INE Institute. Um, and so I really was excited to ask you both a little bit about that transition from doing um, really active, demanding kind of grassroots work on the ground with, with Cosecha and before that, both of you with multiple organizations via the immigrant rights movement. Um, and now shifting into some of the work you're doing now with INE, preserving memory, Um, what has that tr transition kind of been about for you? What is the personal journey of that shift? And maybe we can start with you, Fatima. Yeah, so I left Cosecha in August, I think of last year, so about six months ago. Um, I'd say still on my transition path for sure. Um, and I left during that time um, because I was just feeling like I was... Um, hitting close to my end. Um, mm -hmm. I felt myself uh, not be as creative, not be as open to things, too attached to outcomes, whether positive or, or negative. Um, and I just really felt the need of um, releasing that which I, I held so close um, in order To, to keep growing and in order to create more room for others to really step up into leadership and, and just to give them more room to flourish. Um, and that was a really hard decision. I'd probably thought about it every once in a while, but um, I think I just reached a point where I, um, I needed to do it. When I came out of there, I was really trying to figure out what's next. Um, and you're so fully immersed in like 24 seven almost um, in, in another world, I would say. Um, and so coming out was kind of like a, a shock for me. Um, and so I was just trying to figure out what to do next and trying to at the same time uncover and, or recover maybe some of what, who was I before <laughs> Cosecha. Um, mm. And in that process, I was exploring like, oh, maybe there's... Um, I wanted to be a learner again, I suppose. And so I was looking into herbalism, into um, different ways of healing. Um, and I realized along the way, which is why I feel I was probably really open to um, Carlos and the INE Institute and working with Rodrigo on the memory program was that I realized that along the way I was just attempting to recover like um, a longer view Um, which we'll talk about later on, I'm sure, but just like recovering a sense of a, of a more longer perspective of, of memory. And so being grounded in something a lot deeper, even beyond my time here on earth. 
That led me to then be working with uh, some indigenous filmmakers uh, with Rodrigo and the Memory Program at the Aini Institute. And I've just loved being learning from them and um, yeah, super grateful for anything and everything that they're able to share. I'm just like gobbling everything up and, and, and trying to hold it with, with the necessary respect, right? Um, since um, it resonates a lot, it's affirming of, of my values. Um, and I'm not Peruvian, right? I'm Mexican and Filipino, so uh, holding it with the respect it deserves as well. Mm. Thank you. How about you, Carlos? What is this era of your life? What is this transition into the memory mm. work? Well, I think for me, um, so my mother got cancer last year. So um, I, I spent most of my time in the migrant rights movement since I was 15 years old. Now I'm 30 or 31. And actually for me, I got sick about, well, my mom got cancer last year, but I got sick maybe about four or five years ago. And that led me to go back home in Peru. And through that meeting, some mentors that, um, that that allowed me to understand, well, first of all, that I was part of a much larger historical process, that my life wasn't really determined by the decisions, so many decisions I'd made, but more about the context that I'm living in, the history, the cultures that I'm in. And that if I could not understand that, then I would always be thinking that I could change everything as we're made to believe as organizers and all these kinds of things. So my journey with memory started five years ago into trying to understand that we did a training two, three years ago called the Long View, which was about 5,000 years of history in six days. So we were trying to systematize of, of, or create popular education around some of these history things. And last year, my mother got cancer, uh, or, or we found out she had, she, has, she had cancer in February of last year. And by April, I had to leave, uh, leave my position as an organizer with Cosecha and just dedicate myself uh, full-time to my mother for about six months. Um, so I think for me, um, I had to leave organizing, particularly because, I mean, I was always tired and things like that, but I but I had to leave because my mother got cancer. Mm. And, 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 that, and, and the blessing of her cancer, even though it has given her and us so much pain, and, and now she's doing much better, of course, is that uh, it has allowed me to take a step back to reflect, you know? So I'm now, I would say, maybe more of a transition point uh, between whether to come back to organizing or do other things as well. But really reflecting before I get into another battle, which I could get into mm. one or two more years, um, and, and I could just be lost. But because my mom is still in remission, it's still I'm still taking it one step at a time because, you know, she we still she's cancer-free, but you know, with cancer, you never know. So, mm -hmm. yeah. That's right. Thank you. And um, I know, too, that even before this transition, Carlos, you have been talking about paying attention to how long things take yeah. for a long time. And that's a phrase that having worked with you, like how knowing how long things take is a phrase that you say all the time that now is part of who I am. Like oh, I return cool. to that phrase often. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, like we have to know how long things take. Um, and it reminds me, too, of even the project that you were talking about many years ago about uh, the one piece of paper. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about that? Because I feel like this history and memory piece has been a part of who you are for a really long time. Yes, yes. Well, about... Um, so when I left, I, I, I spent much of my years in the dream movement or in the American rights movement. And, and when, when after DACA passed and I, I left my role as national coordinator in United with Dream, 
I, part of what I left is because I felt I had I was tired and I had nothing more to contribute. And in, in that discovery, I was like, everything, every problem that I had was always through an immigrant rights lens, you know, like housing through immigrant rights, uh, gender rights through everything is immigrant rights. And I was like, well, but the world's actually going through a lot of other problems. So I was like, what can, can I understand the world's are, the problems that are happening in the world? I'm putting it in one piece of paper, you know, can, can we synthesize that much to have understanding? Then I realized I was stupid. <laughs> 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 and that led me to, uh, because to understand problems, you have to understand where they come from and you have to understand mm. the history, mm. you know. And, and, and part of what I always say is that wisdom is understanding how long things take, mm. you know, to see a process. And sometimes uh, because of the culture that we live in that, that, uh, that favors an individual's perspective over a communal perspective, we think that what we see in one lifetime is all the what one can see. But other cultures can see multiple lifetimes because they're sharing what they're seeing in a lineage, you know? And there are some things that you cannot see mm. in 100 years that you must see in 500 or 1,000. So how much can a community or a culture see and learn from it is really important, you know? So to me, that, that, that's always been guiding me because I think in, in the world that I've been involved in social change, we want... You know, when do we want it now and all those kinds of things? Mm -hmm. But the question is, is that now 100 years or is it now 10 years? Mm -hmm. And I think we have so much stress because we think we're going to change something, change something that is going to take actually, I think, 50 years or 40 years. But we think it's going to happen in five. Oh, we think it's going to happen in five months. Mm -hmm. And we have all this stress built up. And because of that, we tend to repeat things and actually not even succeed because we're not planning long term. And, you know, and in New Year's, I was saying this to a lot of friends uh, that, you know, that do their yearly plans and all that good stuff. But I said, we tend to overestimate what we can do in one year, but we tend to underestimate what we can do in 10, you know. And and to me, that's that's really important because families are not built in a year. You know, families are built in at least 20, 30 years and, and, and changes in one generation can change five or six more. So that's where it comes from for me. Mm. Thank you. And what does a hunger for a longer view perspective, like where does that come from for you, Fatih, or what, what has that meant to you? Have you felt a shift in your perspective since moving out of the day-to-day -day and looking at the kind of the longer-term history? Um, I think it's always been a part, like a seed in me, so to say. Um, I've, uh, growing up, had what we call an old soul I mean, it's no coincidence that in Cosecha they call me Lola, which means grandma in Tagalog. Mm -hmm. um, there's just like, um, I think I've had since a young age uh, needed to reflect on things that I didn't really understand completely. Um, being multiracial, for example, in, in, a, in a school where like I was put with uh, just Latino kids and they thought I was Asian and so they would call me China and then I'd speak Spanish and they'd be like, huh, what? <laughs> um, so always like <laughs> dealing with the confusion of others, I think had me reflecting or the fact that I like playing football because I grew up with um, brothers and, and boy cousins and so just um, always needing to reflect on like, what, why are people tripping up about things that I just... I'm just going with what I want to do or or be who I am. Um, and I think that um, 
reflection um, has really supported in me to continue doing that today. And um, I think there's also just um, growing up, my, my dad always taught us about respect. And I think as I got older, I really got to understand the other part of respect really being about gratefulness. And I think that was a really grounding force for me in my organizing work. Um, and even today, um, but just a, a gratefulness for the small things, um, mm. people and really big things to me, but like people donating so that I could pay for meals or pay for transportation or, uh, cell phone, uh, Remember when we were fundraising way back in the day for everything we had to do in in before cosecha times and during cosecha times and just um, being aware of that interconnectedness of people and just being super grateful. Um, and then as well, just um, I feel maybe just as my parents are immigrants, you know, from all from two different countries, um, always wanting to to get to know more of the lineage, the history, and feeling a little bit of a disconnect um, living here uh, in, in a country, I think, um, a lot of the times or sometimes doesn't really reflect um, what my parents are teaching me or, or my sense of how things were when they were back home. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering too, what are some of the, as I'm grappling with this thing that you shared, Carlos, about like we overestimate what we can do in one year, but we underestimate what we can do in 10. And also this idea of like some of the monumental changes we need to see in the world, what real, how many years are they going to take? Mm. In some ways coming out of like an organizer culture, what comes up for me is like that total urgency is kind of the, the, status quo of our movements Mm. and that a lot of that urgency is so incredibly real in terms of like yeah like if your parent is in detention or if Mm. you know the like if a cop like killed somebody in your family like Mm. that urgency is so real and lives every single day are being lost are being compromised families are being separated like and, and so I feel like because of that urgency, like in some ways our organizing culture offers one response, which is like the only way to do justice to that level of loss and pain mm. is to kind of show up like a maniac. Mm. Um, and mm. so I'm wondering, like, have you in, in this longer view, how might you help me or maybe others who mm. feel this way of like, well, the way to show the most dignity and commitment to our shared humanity is to like be urgent. But also balancing with, you know, what does it mean to acknowledge how long things might take and not have that be a resignation of like, oh, it's going to take forever and like to have that be a way that dilutes our energy. You know Mm. what I mean? Yeah, Yeah. that's a good point. Uh, Let's see, let's see, let's see. Well, there's a lot of urgent things. To me, uh, I think this is a cool thing about knowing history. So when, so I got, so I got this thing called, so I spent four years uh, in the National Network in United with Dream, and I used to travel 20 out of 30 days and uh, fly everywhere. And then I we passed DACA. I left in December, and in January 20th or the 15th, 
I was in a hospital with this thing called Evans syndrome, which means that my spleen was overworking itself and eating my blood really quickly. Not not a good thing to have, right? The doctors don't know why it happened. Mm. Of course, I think a lot of it had to do with the stress of all those years um, of, of that national work and going everywhere. Um, and when I went to this trip back home in Peru and, and, and met one of my mentors, Don Jorge, um, you know, he asked me things like, uh, have you read Marx? And I was like, uh, well, I read the, have you read Capital? I think he said, and I said, I read the summary, you know? And he, and he said, oh, you have not read Capital. It's like, how, how can you talk? And he's like, the people in the U.S., they don't read Capital? And I was like, I don't think they read Capital. I don't think they read that much. And he <laughs> said to me, well, we cannot talk because regardless how you feel about Marx, you need to understand what he says historically because that's the language of most of the left in the world. You know, so then I proceeded to read a thousand pages in three days because he wouldn't want to talk to me. And then he will say, well, then after that, he'll be like, well, what happened in China 600 years ago? What happened in Europe 2000 years ago? You know, why colonialism happened? Like it, it's, that's not, that doesn't happen in the Americas, it happens in Europe first, you know, what happened there? And I just understood that I was just historically, historically analphabetic. Like I just had no context of history, more than a hundred years, like it's civil rights movement, or you can even talk some American history, but more than 200 years, I just didn't know. Uh, you know, he just go, he went even deeper. He's like the Paleolithic and the Neolithic and all this different terminological, terminological epochs and um, terms. So I think to me what happens is that, to me, the study of history is, is a good way to gain perspective. So yes, there is emergencies or urgencies, but sometimes I think what happens is that if you look, that social media has changed so much of how people get their communication in history. So even though there was, uh, you know, the, the, the plague in Europe, you know, thousands of, hundreds of years ago, it's not like everyone in the world heard it, you know, or or people hearing every day what's happening in every locality. So I think we have an aggregative force in social media that gets us to really think the world is in a really dire place, which might which actually is true, but but we feel it so much more. So I think what to me what's important is actually what's the perspective that we need to cultivate around what things happen. Because I think also because we don't understand what has happened, we tend to uh, think that actually everything is an emergency when maybe it's not. Mm. So yes, there's deportations happening every day. Yes, um, there is uh, people being killed in the street every day. Yes, there's a lot of abuse. The question is, what's a strategy that could get you to change it in 10 years? Mm -hmm. If you cannot take a month to think about that, then you, you got to understand that that things are not going to change, that you can, you know, it's like, but even people in hospitals in the emergency room have more, like if we want to, I think there's a part of the movement that is emergency care. Well, we, why are we modeling that around? Because even doctors have a way to organize that in a way that the doctors are still getting paid, they have to sleep, mm. they can't take everybody. And they're actually looking at what are the conditions that increase capacity in emergency rooms. Like, for example, in Boston, it's the winter. People that are homeless want to be in you know. So there's different factors. So I, th I think uh, emergencies things are happening, and I think that we can be part of many emergencies in one year or even in many seasons, but we also need time to think and time to reflect because uh, I, I think at some point people will realize that the emergency is never going to stop <laughs> mm -hmm. unless there's some major different ways of doing things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
And Fatima, have you felt that perspective change the way that you're relating to your organizing or how you perceive your role in the longer history, especially your commitment to immigrant rights? Yeah, I think when I, um, just to maybe build off of what Carlos is saying as well, um, when we were in Cosecha, something that helped us a ton when we, there were these moments of urgency and even crisis, I would say. Um, I'm reminded of the night that um, Trump got elected to be president and it was so critical and key for us. The first thing that we did um, after mourning some, I think, uh, that night was um, in the morning we all sat around together and, and kind of uh, each got a chance to share how we were honestly feeling. Um, and I think that that honesty of like, where are we at um, in our bodies, in our hearts, um, really allows you to be grounded in the moment. And then that allows for some clearing up to, um, for, I guess, creativity or life to come out, right? Uh, and that's how um, we headed into the whole sanctuary campus uh, um, events that happened afterwards and um, being able to to really live into the role that we were playing a part of um, in the in the larger picture I think personally for me where I'm at right now is I'm uh, I think I've been trying to regain some attunement uh, mm. or being in tune with myself and 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 be more present in order to really understand um, and live into my role um, more constantly. Um, and so I went to a 10-day silent meditation retreat in December, and that's mm. really what it was about. It was about just being more present. And um, I think I realized along the way on the journey that I just, um, because I was in my head in so many different places in, in the future of what could happen in the in the urgency of the moment or the past and and what could have been done differently or um, what went so well that I, um, my mind, my being just felt super filled with, with a lot of chaos. And so really right now I'm trying to develop and, and live into practicing um, being more grounded uh, consistently and, and and being aware of where I'm at at every moment. And um, I think it, it's it's kind of like learning how to live again, if that makes sense. Um, and I think from that foundation, I can, I can really live out what, what my role is and, and not, I think, get caught or what is it like um, carried away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to ask here too if there is anything I know that the specific projects that y'all are working on right now in relationship with indigenous folks in Peru um, and also the documentary that you've been working on bringing here uh, Voices That Heal or Voces Que Sanan um, what are some of the principles that you have been like learning about through those projects, those collaborations, that listening? Um, and then also, I know it's a deep value of both of yours um, to practice a lot of reciprocity 
with when you learn from communities. And so I'm also curious, what are what are some of your principles that you've taken even going to learn from uh, a community? Mm. Fatima, do you want to start? Yeah, uh, I actually have a great <laughs> example. Um, so back, it was must have been a couple of years ago, I think maybe... Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, Carlos. I think we were in LA, um, and we were doing um, some relational culture training. And you showed us a clip of a video of now I know that it's part of the documentary Keshwachaka, which is about um, the longstanding tradition of um, communities, indigenous communities in the Andes or the mountains of Peru, uh, who build. Um, the oldest suspension bridge in the world um, mm. with with straw and and they continue the it's really a ritual communal ritual um, and I remember when you first showed me the clip and then you showed us a longer clip in Longview I I couldn't help but like tear up and cry and I think um, part of the principles um, that it really you get to to witness uh, through through viewing and then to all, through also getting to know the filmmakers, um, Don Jose Doña Alejandrina is around reciprocity and, and just how to, but also um, uh, Minca, which is collective work. Um, and I think just uh, last year, I think it was in January when we did the airport action for me, it was like, I felt it. Um, in how we communicated and how we each uh, mm. lived out our roles and how, and it took a lot of practice for us to get to that point where we were just um, at the airport and able to facilitate a program and also keep things organized in a, in a moment uh, where eventually a thousand people showed up, but just the way we were communicating, the way we were supporting each other, and to see that um, folks have been doing that for thousands of years and um, is really affirming in terms of what what we're capable of doing. And I think it's both um, seeing in the documentaries, um, in Carri, Keshwachaka, in working with Don Jose Doña Alejandrina, who have deep relationships with the indigenous communities, have them over all the time, are supporting them through so many different injustices that happen against indigenous communities in Peru. Um, and hearing the stories and witnessing it and then and then knowing when you're you're feeling and, and embodying it today. I think there's that it's a beautiful connection. Um, yeah, of living into into principles and values. Um, yeah, mm, I think f uh, just to add to that for me, um, how do I say this? It's like there's five million people that go to Machu Picchu every year. Five million people. Uh, for the people that have been there, you know the magic of Machu Picchu. For the people that have not been there but want to go, you will see it. But actually Machu Picchu, is in, it's in the top of a mountain. It is a mountain that they, you know, build upon there and actually sinking. And it's sinking because of so many people that go there every day. Okay. And and there's all these kinds of controls that Peruvian government wants to have, but they don't want to have because it makes so much money out of tourism and this and that. But 5 million people are going there every year. There's thousands of people that are going to Peru, Ecuador, Bolivia to have ayahuasca. They want to have the sacred plant 
to have a different kind of a spiritual experience. So there, there's thousands of people that are looking to the South for healing mm-hmm. and direction, spiritual direction. That is what's happening, right? So uh, when I got sick in 2013, Part of the major shift that I had is that because I was raised in the U.S. since I was 12, I had much more of a Western understanding of my culture, you know, or or, or even life or organizing or all these things. So all my mentor did was to say, stop looking at Europe. Don't negate it. That's part of what we've been through. That's part of where you live. But, But look also what's happening now. So to me, what I'm always trying to figure out is how is the looking and the relating to the South? What's the relationship like? So... One, I can go and I can just try to buy ayahuasca from some mentor or try to, you know, go into a touristy uh, destination. But actually, I, I never been about that. I haven't even done ayahuasca yet in my life because in my tradition, there is a belief that not every that, that there's a plant for you, but not every plant is for you, you know, so that taking ayahuasca might necessarily be for you, particularly because I'm not from the Amazonian region. I'm from from the coast. We have other kinds of sacred plants that could that, that could support us. So to me that to me the relationship is how can we do it in a way that it will be communal? So uh, particularly when we are saying, okay, well, what, you know, 500 years of colonialism, Western domination, well, there's actually other cultures there and particularly indigenous communities are still, many of them are keeping, well, in the relationship that they can with the market and everything, keeping some other practices, right? So how do you support that and how do you learn from them in a way that is not extractive? Because it's like, hey, I have problems. Teach me how to get out my problems. Heal me because I'm so bad from this culture that I'm in. And give me, give me, give me, give me, give me all those things, you know? So how do I do that? So for me, there's been three things that 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 are important in that relationship. I think one of them uh, has been that I have to really, really, really understand my my history and the history of the people that I'm talking to. Like I have to read about it, I have to ask questions, and I cannot pretend that I know much because technically I really don't, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> And second, I have to find people that I think are doing amazing things to preserve the culture because the, uh, one of the biggest things is that the culture is always at mercy because of colonialism. Uh, most young people, because of phones and urbanization, they don't want to be in, in a tribal setting anymore. So communities are losing the history. So memory, as we, we call it, right, like that, that continuity of people sharing advice and legacies and myths and science over generations is being lost in this generation at a faster pace than we've seen before. Mm-hmm. That's just because of the size growth of urbanization and, and you know, and, and, and capitalism and so forth and so on. So how do we do it? So we find some of these filmmakers and we're like, we're going to find some money because they're, they're doing documentaries on some of these indigenous communities in their own language. So the next movie, Voices That Heal, mm-hmm. is from four communities they're doing four of their languages. And uh, one of the languages, only 12 people speak the language, you know? So we know that in 20 years, most likely, or 30 years, people won't speak the language, but the documentary serves as a, as a living record of that community and their culture. And even to people that might forget it, but are still from that community, they can go back and remember and do that, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and the last piece is that we think that uh, the reason why we call it memory is because sometimes the things that we think are like we need to buy or consume actually within us, within our culture, they're just dormant. Mm. So like you ask, well, what about people are like, I cannot, 
in, in organizing. We cannot coordinate ourselves. Well, that's just collective work. How do you get a group of people to do something together? Well, in your culture, what is the tradition of that and can you rescue it? Because that's easier than sometimes learning something new is just remembering something you know. So how do I ask my parents, my grandparents, how did they work together 50 years ago? Because collective work, you know, it's been go it's always going on for years, still going on. My national was more imposed, you know. So how do I remember or what was my religion before? Yeah. So one of the biggest um, discoveries for me in the memory program over the years is that the biggest reason why most people feel lost is because there's a lack of religion and spirituality. That's just blank point what it is. Even people that are secular still believe that there's no belief, so they still believe in something. So everybody, I think, is, is missing a spiritual tradition. But because of organized religion, so many of us, including my parents, are like, I don't want to deal with Catholicism or the Catholic Church. But everyone needs a spiritual practice. It's just part of life. Everyone needs to know my origin story. Who am I? Where do I come from? What is this life about? So I think people are particularly looking to the South to get that answer. Uh, and we want to be able to support the people that are doing that so that we can do it responsibly. But more than anything, so it's not a commercialized because I think also people there are trying to make money out of tourists. And that's, it is what it is, you know? It, that's just how, how the economy is organized. Uh, but to me, that's one of the biggest things, you know? Whether we like it or not, that's, that's part of it. And most people in our history have been part of religions. Most everybody. We... The last hundred years are actually quite different from the 200,000 years of people believing who they are, where they come from. You couldn't get away from, you can actually not even understand history without understanding people's religions, because that's the cornerstone of their beliefs. Hey y'all, this is Kate, and this is the portion of our show where we take a moment to share some affirmations or gratitudes from our community. Thank you to those who submitted this week on the very first week of uh, listener submitted gratitudes. And this is a time for us to reclaim uh, a sense of celebrating one another and to build a healing and supportive culture in our movement work um, by really expressing public gratitude and appreciation for one another. So um, huge gratitude on my behalf to the first couple of people who said yes to trying out this segment. You're going to hear from Adam and Vero and from Lissy Ramanau. So here's what they have to say. Hi, this is Vero. And this is Adam. And we'd like to shout out Survivor, Survivor Theater, Theater Project. Project for giving me a safe space to connect with my body, helping me find power and community. And for being such a big part of our healing journey. Survivor Theater Project equips survivors with the tools to break silence and end sexual violence through trauma-informed theater and healing arts performances, workshops, and trainings. We are grateful to STP for its commitment to the healing and leadership of queer women of color survivors. Shoutouts to Mel, Leila, Irene, Sarvi, Noemi, Kaya, Karuna, McCall, Monique, Barbara. Thanks, STP. Hey, everyone. Uh, happy Black History Month and Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, this is Lissy Romano sending a huge love shout out to the Black Visions Collective in the Twin Cities, who have spent the last week disrupting corporate 
festivities around the Super Bowl in their city, uh, shining a light on the stepped up policing and militarization that has come along with the Super Bowl and demanding transparency around the private embezzlement of public funds to uh, line the pockets of uh, private investors who benefit from the Super Bowl. So I want to give huge love and thanks for their sacrifice, their planning, and their moral courage, uh, and appreciate them for their example and how we can use these massive national rituals to demand something better for our communities. Thank you. Those were so beautiful and amazing. So as you can hear, this is a time that you can shout out an organization or an individual. You could even thank nature or a season or a, a movement historical figure. Um, really just a time to shout out anything that you've been really appreciating in your healing and justice work journey. Um, and if you want to submit your own affirmation to be shared on a future show, you can do so by going to healingjustice.org. And in the upper right-hand corner, there is a button that says share an affirmation. Also, the link is in the show notes on whatever platform you're listening to the podcast, healingjustice.org and share an affirmation. We love hearing your voices. And now let's go back to our conversation with Carlos and Fatima. And so I'm hearing some concepts here that I think, I mean, clearly we're talking about in some ways appropriation, right? Like a, like a sense of people looking to a culture outside of themselves, or as you say, looking to the South. Hella white people are looking to the South, right? Like yeah, trying yeah. to go and buy and figure out, like, how do I create a sense of meaning, a sense of depth of where do I come from, right? Yes. Um, and so I'm hearing principles around, like, actually start by looking at your own culture, investigate your own lineage of what are some of those tools that have uh, that have been present that is the reason why all of us are still alive today and that our, our yeah. people have survived. Yeah. Um, I'm hearing also the work that you're doing that really is in reciprocity with supporting the filmmakers and the folks who are preserving culture that is their own, like yes. for future generations. Um, and I'm wondering if there's anything else I'm missing that either of you would add around this or even w whether you agree with the, the terminology of appropriation. But I think when mm -hmm. we get into this healing space and the way that whiteness has worked in the U.S. and that like colonialism has worked in Europe and here, mm -hmm. there's definitely like a mad grab for a sense of meaning and spirituality right now, right? So. Mm -hmm. Are, are there any other pieces you would offer around that accountability portion or that reciprocity portion really f for anyone, not just white folks, but for anyone who's kind of yeah. looking uh, to reconnect more to a sense of history and, and tradition? Yes. Uh, well, should I go first, Fatih? Or? Yeah. Okay. Um, sorry. Um, well, I think for me, so all, all conversations about appropriation have to be really historical. If not, they're just, they just make no sense. Mm -hmm. So what do I mean by that is that, for example, um, every nation, and of course the world as well, but every nation has a history of nations having reciprocity or not. So the, the, the beautiful thing about reciprocity, and, and I will explain this because so people make sense. So the way people understand reciprocity is like, you give me something, I give you something, Right. And, and usually there's this exchange that could happen between two people, but also can happen 
maybe Kate gives me something and I give something to Fatima, Fatima gives to somebody else. It doesn't necessarily have to be, um, what is it called? I don't know, like mm. uh, two-dimensional. It mm. could be more, right? So reciprocity can happen in that way, right? People gifting to each other and so forth and on and on and on and on. And also gifting can happen not just between individuals or between families or networks, but between communities, however large the communities are, right? So that's reciprocity. And sometimes reciprocity can be um, very fixated. Uh, what I mean by that is very rigid sometimes, that reciprocity can even, um, because reciprocity is just a story of communities exchanging. That's all there is. This community gives this, this is the role of this community. It's a communal answer mm. to how we solve our problems, right? How we all have a role and contribute. And of course, it's not just communities, but it's also the earth, the environment. There's also reciprocity to that, right? So, but based on what your belief system is or your culture, you might negate certain people from reciprocity mm. or negate even the earth. So in indigenous communities, you know, when they say, um, it is not that I own, I think they said this in a beautiful ceremony in Standing Rock. I heard this in a video from them to say, it is not that we own the land, but the land owns us. It's a different relationship, mm -hmm. right? So it, it's a different relationship of who do you have reciprocity and how you're giving and exchanging as a way to extend life, mm -hmm. right? Just as a parent, uh, you got to understand a child comes in, the child ain't giving much. <laughs> Right? The child is clearly dependent on you, right? But you're giving all this love to the child. Of course, the child is teaching you all these lessons, right? But really, you're giving to the child for many years. As mammals, we're the, we have the longest period of development, right? We, we're not like dogs. Like, in the period, like, yeah, years, cool. No, we got like 15 years. It's a long while to let you off so you can be more independent, quote unquote, right? And then when we get older, you know, traditionally, our children take care of us. When we are not able to, and then that keeps closes back the loop and keeps going, and then the grandparents become the storytellers to the, you know, to the granddaughters and sons, you know, to the grandchildren and so forth and so on. So, so that's the vision of reciprocity. So, when I look at reciprocity in the U.S., mm. you have to understand the communities that are in the U.S. So there's there's the the white communities, there's the black communities, there's the Latino communities, and then the question is, what's the reciprocity there? So when there is only gimme, 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 gimme and I don't give you anything, then there's all this conflict that happens in society, mm -hmm. right? So in those terms, in, in, in those, those terms of a lack of reciprocity, people can actually get very intense about appropriation of cultures because the, the culture is not being given w willingly. Yeah. There's no ritual for when people say, we want to share our culture, right? We want to give our culture. We want to... So because of the lack of... We don't have a federation in the U.S. where we can have the dialogue. There's no dialogue. In the media, there's no dialogue between one people's and another people's. And, you know, that can hold the complexity of those people's. So then reciprocity becomes kind of intense. And then there's all this stuff. But in the most history of the world, culture has always been shared. That's the other flip side of appropriation or, or things is that people learn from each other and they mimic each other all the time. So part of our DNA as, as mammals, as humans, is to copy things from all other people all the time. Like you see somebody, you know, giving birth to somebody, you see a doula and you're another doula from another community. You like, you're like, you like something you saw, then you're going to copy it. But the question is, is there reciprocity in that relationship? Yes or no? When there isn't, that's when appropriation, I think, comes in. Mm. But it is so difficult because sometimes we as individuals think that we can solve the appropriation question, which sometimes is more of a larger communal federal 
Mm. That because that reciprocity is established, every other relationship on the bottom collapses. Because mm-hmm. there's no way two individuals can make peace for two peoples. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, so to me, that's a conversation. That's why we at the INE Institute see ourselves as a bridge, as a bridge between the Western world in the U.S. and the world in the Andes and Amazons in Peru. One bridge. We need like a hundred bridges, mm-hmm. but one bridge that can have reciprocity. And this year, we're bringing our mentors in April, and it's taken us five years to bring them. Because we wanted to bring them with a respect. And sometimes that's what we need to figure out is what does it take to build the bridge, you know, mm-hmm. little by little so that we can have an actual dialogue. And, and there's a feeling when they come, you, they're coming, they want to give everything. That's a different idea. Mm. That how do we get people to give more and, and ask to give more and, and have this constant exchange? That's the vision that, that I think that I learned the most from the long view is this vision of reciprocity, which is the central cornerstone relationship that, that gets people going, you know, even if, even if we negate it. Mm-hmm. Most of our capitalism has been the exploitation of some people, so taking reciprocity from some people and reciprocity from the earth. Mm-hmm. All the biodiversity of the earth we take in mm-hmm. to build fossil fuels and all these kinds of things. But that's the earth's reciprocity to us, but we don't pay back. So that's, that's where we're misaligned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I'd add is um, when we um, were volunteer organizers, I think the, one of the keywords is volunteer. And I think when it comes to reciprocity, just, just everything being given voluntarily, right? Um, and just being also super clear and understanding that um, when there is a sense of entitlement, as in your needs, like you're demanding your needs to be met, there, um, there is a break in that reciprocity and that trust with other people. And I think, um, cause you're not, you're forcing people's, uh, I get volunteerness or a uh, voluntary <laughs> portion of it to, to give you something to, to meet your demands. And, and, um, that's also part of the beautiful relationship. And I think for me, I mentioned it earlier, but, um, and I appreciate Carlos talking about like uh, needing those spiritual practices. I see that's why I think I see gratefulness as a basic form of spiritual practice. Of um, I've had the gift of having many humbling experiences, but how to approach things uh, and receive moments as as they are with with a lot of gratefulness. I think um, when we lose gratefulness um, for what others give or what a moment gives or or a mother earth gives, um, we lose a lot uh, and a lot of relationship because it's all based in relationship. Uh, Yeah. Mm. And I'm curious how you all feel like this Mm. concept of relationship and reciprocity, if it were applied in our movements in the U.S., like Mm. when you are talking about like individuals cannot actually solve the 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 problem of the unequal exchange that has happened over mm-hmm. thousands of years um and like our people groups in this country right so so our movements are one effort at actually trying to right some of the the yes. root inequality of that and the the extractive exchange but then also in our movement cultures we see a lot of siloing right like a lot of not working together a lot of like feeling hurt or throwing each other under the bus or making strategic decisions that leave different peoples behind right based on what's practical at a given moment like 
How do you see this concept of reciprocity? Like, what would it look like if it actually was playing out at a movement scale mm. or at more of a collective scale in it in this era in the U.S.? That's such a great question, Kate. Um, um, how do I say this? It's that so the the movement is really a parallel community to changing the big community. I think we, we tend to misunderstand that. We think we are the community <laughs> instead of that we're just a transition. Mm. We're just a transition point to changing the country, changing our states, changing our cities, changing mm. our towns, so forth and so on. So we, we tend to misunderstand that, right? So uh, sometimes what happens is that that, what I mean by peoples, that peoples that happens at the federal level also needs to happen at a local level. Mm. So I think sometimes what's missing is that uh, we need reconciliation not just to happen at the federal level. We need to happen in Boston and Milwaukee. So how are people holding people's dialogues? I, I, I don't see that. I see me as an individual person talking to an individual. That's not two people's talking. So sometimes we need the leadership of people to emerge and create a dialogue between two peoples that can begin a process of reconciliation mm. of a thousand people, a thousand white people signing a document, another thousand black people, that then can engage in a different relationship. Mm as peoples, and they're gonna to try to get all the peoples. Mm -hmm. You know, we white people of Massachusetts are going to engage in the, there's only that way to figure out, I'm sorry, to figure out how to do that process and engage in that dialogue. So I think what's happening is, again, in movements, what scale are we operating in? Are you local, are you national? If you don't know the scale and you don't understand the problem you're facing, because if you're doing national, it's a much broader history. If you're doing Massachusetts or New York, What's the history of New York? What's the race relations in New York? What's the history of reciprocity in New York? You have to understand, because also hundreds of people from different countries have come here. Well, how have they been treated? They also have to be part of the Federation in New York. They also have to be the peoples of New York. They have to be included, the Iranians, the Iraqis, everybody, you know, the Venezuelans, everybody has to be kind of be included. So to me, I think for activists, I think we tend to not forget that there has to be the reconciliation work need to be done on multiple scales to even get people to do something, mm. to even get them to do a project, to fix the economy, to fix their political system. If our relationship communally is broken, then it's really difficult to fix the country. Mm. You know, and I think that's why a lot of people through the Obama election felt that he was bridging a little bit of reconciliation. I think he was. It was a little bit of having a black man in office, it, it felt like there was a beginning of, of a, you know, a, a continuation of civil rights movement of, of creating that. But of course, there wasn't enough. There needs to be, that needs to be in multiple scales and, and done well. And I think people, what they're trying to get is an identity. And I think, uh, you know, racism or everybody trying to be white, it's, it's really, it's a whitening everybody. Even white people don't have no idea, you know, everyone it's being whitened of their identity if you're particularly to that, to, to, to that group. So I think people are looking to the traditions, but I would ask, what were the traditions in Europe that were connected to Mother Earth? Mm -hmm. What were the traditions in Europe that the Roman Empire totally killed? I mean, these are, so can there be a process of re-beginning that remembering. And if there's not enough information, can we recreate honoring them and be a new recreation? Mm -hmm. And can we look for a way to say, hey, I love the Indian spiritual tradition. I love the Indian. Great. Can we talk to those leaders and start our own forms of that with respect, with saying this is new people, but we like, can we exchange? Mm -hmm. You know, so I think that's, that's the dialogue, the interfaith, intercultural, that, that I think we need mm -hmm. to get to massive change. Mm -hmm. 
And Fatima, I want to ask you too, are, are there, were there instances specifically in the work that you did in Cosecha, even though you're fully dedicating yourself to the memory work now, you were definitely already thinking about these concepts earlier. Like, are there pieces of, you know, reciprocity or, um, or embedding more of a spirituality and a shared culture in the work that you did in Cosecha? Like any stories or examples that you might give of how these principles were trying to be lived differently in that organizing work? Yeah. Um, and to build off of what Carlos was saying as well, I, maybe another way of saying a bit of what he was saying is I think fundamentally uh, what at least when we were in Cosecha and in organizing in general, what we were fighting against is a lack of belonging. Um, because uh, we've lived into being blind to the natural relationship that exists between human beings. And so until we are able to practice something differently, you can't really replicate it. And so in Cosecha, we were very intentional about making sure that we were... Um, creating what we call relational culture. And so in order to do that, we, we had, uh, we did various practices. Um, we would do resonating, which we learned from a relational uprising, which is spending some time together in small groups and really, um, speaking, um, into a group, how we were feeling, uh, deeply, um, according to reflection questions or just how we were doing in general, and then allowing and the space for the people to just uh, say that they were with us, um, during various moments and, and, um, and, and just felt, feel held, you know, uh, naturally as humans, we resonate with each other. If someone's smiling or laughing, you can't help but smile and laugh. Um, if you're crying, you can't help but feel, feel sadness. That's the beauty of us being humans. Um, then the other things that we would do, um, is we would lead in, in rituals, um, Especially, I, we, we learned sometimes the hard way that it was especially mo important during transition moments. And so moments where we decided, okay, we have to split up as a group of volunteer organizers and live in different homes or be in different states. And just the need to have ritual time together to connect emotionally and also to say this change and everything that's happening is, is, is a part um, and is necessary. I'd love to ask you both to just talk a little bit, if you'd like to, about the work that you're doing very practically now, and especially Voices That Heal, and in the spirit of this conversation, how we can be in reciprocity with you as you do this work. Um, yeah, can you can y'all fill us in a little bit about what you're up to? He mentioned that we're bringing some of our teachers here uh, to the U.S. for the first time in April. We're actually having a three-day seminar where uh, we're having some healing elders and just um, teachers from the Andes and the Amazon here in Boston. And we're doing a three-day seminar where um, they're really going to teach us and, and share and, and um, allow us to be in dialogue with them around different topics um, that have to do with um, Amazonian healing practices or um, the symbols um, in Andean architecture or art and um, a lot of these concepts that Carlos and I have mentioned, digging deeper into them. Um, 
during these three days. And we're also going to show for the very first time here in the U.S. Voces Que Sanan or Voices That Heal. And that's a documentary um, about four indigenous communities in the Amazon of Peru. And I haven't gotten the chance to really um, see it all, but um, there is just, it's amazing how much um, you're able to transmit in documentaries, just the amount of visual symbolism. Um, and we're, the songs that are called the Shuva prayers are going to be included in the documentary. So people really getting a deeper perspective into um, what is life like in these four Amazonian communities. Um, and yeah, then we're going to have events in New York and New Jersey in April as well. And we're doing it right around the time of Earth Day, um, just because we really see um, the opportunity for uh, people to re-listen to the to uh, the bearers of the culture themselves. So you don't have to hear it from us. <laughs> uh, mm. You get to hear it from, from people who are actually living it um, or come from those traditions. Mm. I think it's a, it's a pretty cool opportunity. Uh, I hear a big dialogue always about decolonization. How do we decolonize our food, our practices, our everything, which I think it's great, you know? And to me, I feel like that the cornerstone of decolonization is listening. Mm. That's the cornerstone. And, and listening mindfully and, and listening not romantically. What do I mean by that is because we tend to particularly say we, I think people that have been, there are people of color in, in the Americas. We tend to say everything was good before, but once they came, everything got screwed up, right? And... Uh, and that's true to, to a large extent, but it's also not true completely because that's to ignore that people were humans and that we had our own problems. It's to say that there was never domination, even within our own cultures, that there were not moments where we were unstable. Mm. So I think what happens is that we tend to romanticize because it's so far removed. Even if you talk about the Andes of the Amazon, it's not like we see people from the Andes of the Amazon walking around the streets of Brooklyn or anything like that, right? So it's so far removed. We tend and we hear stories and we hear story from the storyteller and the story story. We tend to romanticize, and I actually think romanticism is such a hard way to really understand somebody. Because when you fall in love with someone, you have to understand that it's not about just the good things, but it's mm. about the bad things too. Mm. It's about both. It's what they bring you and what they take and this whole exchange, right? That's the beauty of the relationship, but it takes years to get to it. So for me, the beauty of of them coming is like, it, it, it's decolonization, that whole dialogue, you can read a million books, you're never going to get what you're going to get in the seminar. I mean, that's just the truth. I spent uh, last year um, many days talking to some of the communities that are going to be in the documentary in the, in the Amazon, in Madre de Dios, in Peru. And it's amazing. I mean, it's a whole world. It's just another world, you know. And, and, and part of the deal, there was this grandmother that they have this, uh, as Fatima is saying, some of the prayers. Uh, this community is healed differently. Some of them heal with plants. Some of the others do not heal with plants, but heal with, uh, with songs or they heal with prayers. So... This grandmother, her granddaughter was having a baby, so she was pregnant. And they have these songs to tell the baby to come out. 
how to come out. You know, so they start singing to the baby when the baby is nine months old or eight and a half. And baby, come this way, move this way. They're, all this instruction in their own language to the baby in a song. That's song they've been singing for a thousand years, you know. So that, that whole lineage, I think, and, and people are going through different parts. There's still envy and there's still sometimes abuse. There's all these things happening. And you can say it's part of colonialism, yes. And part of it is also not. So it's like we have to... So it's not about romanticizing. So that it's like, I don't want you to romanticize the cultures. I want you to see them and the amazingness of it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but also that they're human, just like any of us, and how would we feel? But in some ways, what's going to happen in Boston is really what I see is the Andean and the Amazonian religions are coming to Boston. And so many people are interested. Do people want to be in that dialogue? And of course, you know, Don Alberto is coming from the Amazon. He's one of the top... He top shaman leaders in that region. I mean, he's widely respected. He's been doing ayahuasca for so many years. People look at him from all over the world. He was just in India when I was in Peru. I couldn't even see him because he was so busy. You know, so we're bringing him, we're bringing Don Jose, Doña Alejandrina, we're bringing Don Sadir, which is one of the uh, top archaeologists in Peru, uh, to talk about also the Indian perspective. So we have all these people that I think is going to be a cool dialogue. I, I, the thing is, I, if I was not... If I was that planning it, I would be so thrilled to go because in my whole time as a Peruvian or South American, I haven't seen yet a conference of them coming that is communally held. Not mm. We're holding it at a university, but it's nothing academic. It's communally. They're coming. They're staying at my house. We're feeding them. You know, We're trying to raise some money for them to take home and stuff like that. But it's a dialogue, and, and those intercultural dialogues need to happen more. So I'm just, I just want people to come. I don't do anything. Just come and hang out <laughs> you know, or come to New York or any of the events. Mm. A lot of people always ask me, Carlos, like 5,000 years of history in six days, please. Like, that's a lot of history. You're crazy, you know? And most of the time I agree with them. I think it's a little crazy to think about history in that long in so many few days. I think it's just a way, just a little immersion, but hope that people can begin the process. And I'm going to share a little simple ritual that you could do um, to really show gratitude through forgiveness and wade into relationship with Mother Earth for a second. Um, for me, um, being at ease with change means being able to, to let go, and that can be done um, in relationship and, and through a bit of ritual. So I want to share something I've done before. Mm. Thank you. So to do a gratefulness practice with Fatima, um, you can download the next episode. And if you don't see it up yet, that's because our conversations release on Tuesdays and the practices go live on Thursdays. So you can look for that corresponding practice and begin to invite a little bit of the concepts that we've been talking about into your own action, into your own lived experience. So I have so much gratitude for both of you um, as big mentors and friends uh, on this journey and a lot of gratitude for you sharing your time and your wisdom with us this morning. Um, And yeah, thank you. Thank you, Kate. Congratulations on your podcast. (laughs) Thank you. You just heard a conversation between Kate Werning, Fatima Paulino, and Carlos Saavedra. You can download the corresponding practice offered by Fatima called Releasing to Pachamama. And you'll hear Fatima guide you through a simple earth reconnection practice. It's really short and simple. And all you'll need is a quiet place, either indoors or outdoors, if you live somewhere that it is warm to be outdoors right now, uh, where you can lay on the floor, if that's possible for you. 
There's a couple of extra special gems in our show notes this week, specifically a book list from Carlos um, with some incredible gems that help us in our uh, study of historical perspective and especially looking to the South for wisdom. Um, you can look at those in the show notes wherever you're listening. And there is also a link to the Yashe seminar which they both talked about that's happening in Boston in April, um, which is a really, really special opportunity to join in and learn from the indigenous leaders themselves. So you're welcome to check out those details. And we're also including the link um, to the video about the bridge building ritual or tradition that Fatima referred to um, called Quechua Um, and it embodies a sense of minka or collective work. It's a really beautiful video. It's about 15 minutes long. You can find that link in the show notes as well. As always, you can follow us on social media and join our email list to stay in touch. Visit us at healingjustice.org or find us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We share some pretty beautiful memes of the quotes that our brilliant guests share with us every single day. So make sure that you're following us on social. This podcast is generously mixed and produced by Zach Meyer at The Coal Room. And as always, you can contribute at patreon.com slash healingjustice, or now also submit an affirmation to be played on the show uh, on our website, healingjustice.org, in the upper right-hand corner, clicking to submit an affirmation. Thank you for your commitment to building movements that liberate all of us, including you. Hear you next week.